Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you for having me back. And I want to give a special thank you to Tom and Elizabeth for their hospitality and love to my family and I um, for hosting us. Our text this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 807. Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned, in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now it's almost the end of the summer, which means some of us are starting to think about the end of 2023, which is crazy to think about. I'm sure it's been quite a summer for many of you, and as we approach the last four months of 2023, I want to bring us back to the year 1848. It was on January 24th of that year that James Wilson Marshall, a carpenter from New Jersey, found flakes of gold in the American River at the base of the Sierra Nevada Mountains near Coloma, California. This guy was just trying to build a water-powered sawmill, and he ended up finding bits and pieces of one of Earth's most precious and rare metals. He said about his discovery, it made my heart thump for I was certain it was gold. This, of course, ignited the California gold rush. The territory was made up of mostly Native Americans, and in a span of a year, the population of non-Native Americans grew from 6,500 to 100,000. People from outside America were coming to California. They were borrowing money, mortgaging homes, all because the possibility of finding thousands, tens of thousands of dollars and gold was right in front of their eyes. Of course, this wasn't easy work. When you mined for gold, you had to move rock. You had to dig through dirt. You had to walk in freezing water. Eventually, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of gold was found in the time period of 10 years. 
California's process in becoming the 31st state was undoubtedly sped up because of this gold rush. But this wasn't only a happy story. People died. People became territorial. Native Americans were displaced. The environment was destroyed. This gold rush had far-reaching consequences on so many things and so many people. We see how the discovery of something so precious as gold can change the entire landscape of a country and its economy. And we see that in our passage today. We see how the discovery of something so precious, the king of the Jews, verse 2, caused different reactions in different groups of people. This baby boy, Jesus, the king of the Jews, demanded a response simply with his existence, with his birth. And that's the point of our passage today. The start of the new kingdom affects everyone. The start of the new kingdom affects everyone. And we'll be looking at three points here. The start of the kingdom for the Magi, the start of the kingdom for Herod and the Jews, and the start of the kingdom for the king. The Magi, Herod slash the Jews, and the king. First point, how does this new kingdom affect the Magi? It brings them great joy. Verse 2 says they saw a star rising and they got all excited because they knew that this signified that the king of the Jews was born. And immediately they prepared for a long journey to Jerusalem. That's part of the point that Matthew is trying to make. The Magi weren't even Jews. They were Gentiles. And they were so excited to the point that they were preparing for an extended trip to visit someone who wasn't even culturally their king. The Magi were part of a cast of Medes and Persians, and they specialized in astrology and interpreting dreams. They had superior knowledge. They were kind of like the philosophers and scientists of our day. They spent their time analyzing the stars uh, and planets to gain insight into the events of their day and to try to predict what was going to happen. It actually sounds a little hokey and anti-intellectual, but hey, we all have our superstitions, don't we? But this was God's appointed way to lead the Magi to look for the king of the Jews. And they weren't just looking for him. They came to worship him. But Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem, verse 1. The Magi came to Jerusalem because they expected the king to be born here, the center of Jewish worship and affairs. If you want to find the king of tech, you go to Silicon Valley. If you want to find the king of arts and culture, You go to New York City. If you want to find the king of the most beautiful houses and beaches, you come to the Hamptons. If you want to find the king of the Jews, you go to Jerusalem. Their journey's destination makes sense, except when they get there, they don't find the king of the Jews. They do find a king, King Herod, and we'll talk about him in a bit, but clearly their journey has to continue. The Jewish leadership tells them that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem, verse 6, But the Magi don't even know how to get there. So what does God do? He uses the same star that appeared to them before to guide them, verse 9, to the place where the child was. I just want to pause here and let that phenomenon marinate with you for a second. A star in the sky was moving and leading their way. I mean, forget Google Maps or Waze. They got the Big Dipper or Halley's Comet guiding them. How crazy is that? And finally, verse 10, they get to Bethlehem where the child was, and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
They have found this precious child, and in response, they bow down, they worship, they lavish him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I mean, what a beautiful way to honor the child who was born without much in a place of obscurity. There's been a lot of analogy drawn between the gifts given and the symbolism it portrays. Gold was a gift fit for a king. Frankincense was used by priests in the temple, possibly signifying Jesus' priestly role. And myrrh was used to embalm the dead, possibly foreshadowing the king's death. Now, I think those are some nice and interesting symbolic connections. But I think the greater point is this. They brought their best gifts. They brought the work of their hands. They showed up with something physical to honor the king. Here, I want to draw three applications. Number one, Matthew is making the point that people you don't expect to worship are worshiping Jesus. If you're the king of the Jews, you should be getting honor and respect from the Jews. But Jesus doesn't get that in his passage. He gets it from the Magi, Gentiles, outsiders to the faith, who eventually come to worship him. Friends, here's a reminder to us that in heaven we'll be seeing people that we do not expect. But before then, we'll be seeing people come to Christ who we do not expect. Who is that person in your life that you're thinking, I can pray all day, and that person will never believe in Jesus? It might be a family member, a friend, a coworker. Who are the groups of people you've put on the margins of impossibility? My wife and I were watching a show where one of the characters, she cheats on her boyfriend. She also had a past where she had an affair with a married man. So we were talking about that phrase, once a cheater, always a cheater. That's what the world tells you. You'll never change from that scarlet letter on your chest. But what does Jesus do with the woman caught in adultery? He comforts her and forgives her. He tells her to go and sin no more. What does Jesus say to Zacchaeus, the tax collector? I want to go and dine at your house. And Zacchaeus turns around and he gives the money back to all the people he defrauded and then even more. Are you open to the wonder of God working in people you don't expect? Consider how the Magi's joy and worship might change your mind. Second application here, does worship make you excited? Uh, Charlie Drew, he is the former pastor of Emmanuel Presbyterian Church, and he taught some of my classes in seminary. And he said this in one class, and it completely changed the way I viewed Sunday worship. He said, we often come to Sunday worship and we leave asking each other, how was worship today? But that shouldn't be the question we ask. It should be, how did I do in worship today? I mean, that completely flips the perspective of worship. We often come with this consumeristic mindset, right? The music was okay. The sermon, eh, could have been better. I think they could have done a better job in welcoming us. And yes, these are all necessary elements of the worship that the staff should be constantly thinking about. But if the point of worship is to glorify God and to come participate in the declaration of our praise to him, if it is a response to God's amazing beauty and character and what he has done, let's be honest and grade our response. Friends, ask yourselves, how did I do in worship today? Was there excitement, 
Abe Cho, he's one of the pastors at Redeemer East Harlem, and he works for City to City. He wrote in a Facebook post his random thoughts on parenting, and they're all really good, but this one stood out. Make church the climax of your week, not another overscheduled event. Amen. Imagine if church was a highlight of excitement in your weeks. Third application, worship leads to tangible expressions. The Magi saw the child, the young child Jesus, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. It wasn't just a bending of the knees. They literally fell on their faces. Now, I'm not someone who gets overly expressive or physical in worship, but friends, joy should be tangible. I'm not saying you need to change your personality or disposition or how you lift your hands in worship, but there's a certain way to live that indicates that you are filled with joy And that joy is because of Jesus. When non-Christians look at your life, they should be able to say, I may not believe in Jesus, but this person definitely does. Part of that living involves how we relate to our possessions. See, the Magi offered Jesus gifts. One of the parts of our regular Sunday worship is the offertory. And if Jesus is truly your king, offering your gifts is not a burden but it is a release, a sign of freedom that money is not your king, but Jesus is. What are the things that are currently ruling your life? Your time, your career, your family, your political affiliation, your present circumstances? When you worship something, you're willingly giving that thing your entire life. It's worth asking, who or what am I worshiping? How am I tangibly offering my life to that thing? And is worship of that thing or person actually making my life better? We saw how the start of the kingdom affected the Magi. Next, we see that this kingdom start affects Herod and the Jews. Isn't it curious that God didn't direct the Magi in one fell swoop towards Bethlehem? Yes, Jerusalem was a large city and was probably a, a pivotal stop for the Magi to rest and to recover from their journey. But this whole awkward scene with the Jewish leadership could have been avoided. You see, this glorious good news does come to the Gentiles, to the Magi, but this good news originates from the Jews. Jesus is the king of the Jews. The point of the passage is that the start of this new kingdom affects everyone. And here, God is giving his own people a chance to respond to this good news. We'd expect the same kind of joy that the Magi had, but this wasn't the case. Verse 3, when Herod the king, the illegitimate king, heard this, he was troubled. And not just him, but all Jerusalem with him. The start of the kingdom for Herod and the Jews is filled with fear and power-mongering. This is not good news to them. They're afraid. But they're not ignorant of what has just happened. You see, what's remarkable is that the chief priests and the scribes, verses 4 to 6, they know where the Christ was to be born. They even quote scripture from Micah and 2 Samuel. They know the Old Testament prophecies that indicated that the Messiah's origin story. This Messiah would be a descendant of King David, and Bethlehem was his hometown. Matthew is explicitly trying to state that the predicted Messiah, the anointed one, the one king to rule them all, is connected to their great heritage in King David, and that this king was here. 
What's crazy is that Herod and the Jews just stay in Jerusalem. Their rightful king is here. He's been born, and they don't move an inch. They don't make any travel plans with the Magi to go visit the king. Sure, Herod pays him some lip service. Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. In other words, you guys do the work while I sit on my comfortable throne. Let me know when you're done. Come back. And when you've made sure exactly where he is, I'll go and give him my respect. Talk about being a bad manager. So the chief priests and the scribes know where the Christ is. Herod now knows because they tell him, and they even have the word of God as evidence, and they do the exact opposite of what the Magi do. Nothing. Nothing. Here's a reminder that you can know a lot about the Bible. You can know a lot of theology and still not worship God in the right way. You see, King Herod and the Jews were the ones in power. Yes, they were under Roman rule, but they had power under them. They could lord it over the rest of the Jews. They had the structures in place to enact laws that benefited them and would cause terrible burdens on all the other Jews. Now, Jesus would address this later in his public ministry, but it's clear here that the introduction of the rightful king of the Jews is disturbing their sense of peace and comfort and interrupting their power and privilege. John Calvin doesn't mince words when he says this. In a word, so long as wicked men think that it is taking nothing from themselves, they will yield to God and to Scripture some degree of reverence. But when Christ comes into close conflict with ambition, covetousness, pride, misplaced confidence, hypocrisy, and deceit, they immediately forget all modesty and break out into rage. Let us therefore learn that the chief cause of blindness in the enemies of truth is to be found in their wicked affections, which change light into darkness. Here, God gives Herod a chance. God gives the Jewish leadership a chance. How gracious is God that in the revelation of his son as king, he gives them the opportunity to hear the good news, the good news that we've been singing about and proclaiming every week in church. But the reality is that this good news is only good news because there's bad news that comes with it. God is saying that without him, your life, your kingdom will always be inadequate and incomplete. And realizing that truth is going to be painful. Here it's worth asking, what does this kingdom start look like for you? I know we would all like to be like the Magi, prostrating ourselves before Jesus, giving him our gifts. But if we're honest, we know that living like that is hard. Friends, how does the introduction of Jesus as king challenge your life? What is the one thing, or maybe it's many things, that God is saying, give that to me? And you're saying, no, or I'm not sure. What deep recesses of your heart Are you hiding from God because you too, like Herod, are afraid of giving up your power and comfort? Now, we didn't read the rest of chapter 2, but it's it's extremely terrible. The next few verses in chapter 2 outline one of the greatest tragedies in history. Herod kills all of the male children in Bethlehem, 
all in the region who were two years old or younger. Imagine the outcry from the parents, from the families, the last gasp of little children, toddlers, babies, breathing their last breath. Herod made this terrible event happen because he was afraid. He was jealous. He was angry. And yes, he was only one person, but he had the power to cause mass genocide. When I read this, immediately I thought of Harry Potter. When Voldemort hears of the prophecy of the boy who would defeat the Dark Lord, he puts the plan into place to kill Harry Potter, to take out the one threat to his existence. But there's another real-life event that Matthew is trying to draw a parallel with, and that's with the first chapter of Exodus, with Pharaoh in Egypt, when he slaughters all the male children of the Israelites because they were getting too numerous, and he was afraid of losing his power. You see, when evil is left unchecked in individuals, it grows to become systemic evil. And that's how tragedies like these occur. So I want you to ask yourselves, what pride, hypocrisy, ambition, covetousness are you hiding? And are you aware of the effects these things have on other people? Are you aware of how that leads us to participate in patterns and systems of destruction? Friends, if we're honest, there's a little Herod in all of us. Like Jesus' disciples who ask him, we too must ask, who then can be saved? Which brings us to our last point, finally, the start of the new kingdom for this new king. Verse 11 paints a very candid and beautiful picture. They saw the child with Mary, his mother. Imagine with me, if you will, the God of all creation, coming down as a baby, growing up to become a toddler, playing with toys, getting dirty, needing to be potty trained. He too needed to learn how to stand, how to walk, how to eat, putting sand in his hand and then sitting in his mother's lap and pouring that sand all over her clothes. I'm not speaking from experience as a parent of young children, I promise. But this same God also comes down in the midst of poverty. He was born in obscurity. He needed a star, an astrological entity, to guide people to come worship him. He wasn't born in Jerusalem, or in the halls of Buckingham Palace, or in the great halls of the emperors of China. He was born on the outskirts of the center. He was born in the margins. There's a term that we like to use to describe people who've made it to the top, but they came from obscurity. That term is from humble beginnings. They started out at the bottom, and they made it all the way to the top. In Jesus, we have the exact opposite. The Son of God, who was already at the top, living in divine perfection, and he made his way down to humble beginnings. It is this king who would eventually lead this new inverted kingdom, this upside-down reality that would shake up everything they believed and everything that we believe. You see, friends, Jesus' kingdom doesn't make sense when you look at it from a worldly point of view, because at the end of his life, Jesus dies an absolutely scandalous and shameful death, a criminal's death 
on a cross to pay for sins, not his own because he didn't have any, but ours. It is that death that gives us life. Matthew's identification of Jesus as king of the Jews here will be the same inscription on the cross. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews, a king with a crown of thorns, naked, nailed to a cross, shamed for the world to see because of his great love for us. Think about it like this. The Magi were overjoyed at seeing Jesus, but the Bible, Hebrews chapter 12, describes Jesus as the one who saw us as his joy. And because of that, endured the cross, despising the shame. That is radical love. Jesus' whole life from birth to death to resurrection challenges our understanding of power, approval, comfort, and control. Those things that we tend to love a little too much, those idols. It is inverted. It is upside down. A life following Jesus means that power comes through weakness. If we have power, we're to use it for the good of others. When we follow Jesus, we no longer need to work so hard to to achieve the approval of others because God has already given it to us more fully than anything or anyone else can. Jesus challenges our life of comfort by telling us that he himself is the great comforter who is always with us. Instead of trying to fill our lives with comfort, we acknowledge that following Jesus leads to suffering. It leads to sacrifice which also means we work hard to provide comfort for those who don't have it. And finally, we give up control. See, so much of our lives is focused on trying to maintain control because we want to know that we'll be okay. It's this reason why we over-program and over-schedule our calendars. In Jesus' kingdom, he calls us to yield control to him who is in control of everything. There is no greater answer to, will everything be okay, than Jesus dying the death that we deserved, saying, it is finished, and then rising from the grave. My son, he's three years old, and there are moments where he gets really upset. He's screaming, and he's crying, and my instinct is to just, like, tower over him and to just, like, teach him, to, like, educate him. If you listen to me, this won't happen again. See, I told you so. But what he really needs is for me to get down on his level, literally. To bend down and give him a hug. This is what it means for Jesus to come down to our level. If you're a parent to a teenager, you've probably heard this. You don't know what it's like for me. You don't know what it's like to be going through what I'm going through. In your mind, you're like, well, I was a teenager once too. But sometimes we do the same thing to God. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to live our lives because you're God and we're just here, helpless humanity. But in Christianity, we have a God who knows exactly what it's like to be human. We have a God who understood abandonment, betrayal, loneliness, hunger, thirst, tiredness, real physical pain. We have a God who spoke words of truth only to have them twisted. We have a God who was condemned for doing good, for healing people, 
for loving us. And this Jesus still went to the cross for us. You see, friends, Jesus was born on the outskirts to identify with us. We, too, were on the outskirts, but in a different way. Spiritually, we were far from the center of worship. We were alienated and separated from God. We needed a way to be brought back. We didn't have that power ourselves. Like the Magi, we needed God to guide us to the Son. And he does. If God has led you here today, he's already working in you. If you're here for the first time and you're not a Christian or you're still exploring the faith, friends, be encouraged. God actually wants to make himself known. God wants you to hear this good news against the backdrop of a world in brokenness. One commentator writes this, and he refers to one of Leonardo da Vinci's paintings, Adoration of the Magi. In da Vinci's painting, behind the Magi and Jesus and Mary, there are buildings in ruin and horsemen at joust. The meaning is manifest. The world into which the Messiah comes is in chaos and decay. Things need to be righted. This is also an element in Matthew's story. When Jesus is born, Jerusalem, instead of being overjoyed, is troubled at the news. And there is upon Israel's throne a wicked and illegitimate ruler. And innocent blood is about to be shed. In brief, the world is ill. Is it any wonder that the first word of Jesus' public proclamation is, Repent. God wants you to turn from all the things in your life that promise freedom and joy, but eventually will come up empty. He says, I am the source of your joy. I will give you freedom. Worship me. It is this good news that gives us the wonder and joy of beholding Jesus. It is this grace that moves our hearts to change, to truly change. T.S. Eliot wrote a poem called Journey of the Magi, and these are the last lines of the poem. This, were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This, de- this birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. T.S. Eliot was imagining what it would have been like for the Magi to return to their people. And he's basically saying that an encounter with Jesus caused them to feel like aliens among their own people. You see, friends, when you encounter Jesus when you are really open to meeting him, your life changes. You feel out of place among people who are not worshiping Jesus. There's a certain uneasiness because you have a different king. What does that change? What does repentance look like? There's one thing you take away from the sermon. It's this. Joy and wonder and worship leads to disobedience to evil and obedience to holiness. Joy and wonder and worship leads to disobedience to evil and obedience to holiness. 
Verse 12, the Magi were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Somehow, some way, in that dream, the Magi understood that going back to Herod was the wrong decision. They wanted to protect this family with their young child. You see, an encounter with this new king, Jesus, causes us to live in obedience to God, to protect the powerless, and to advocate for those without voices. What might Grace Presbyterian Church look like if everyone participated in that kind of radical obedience to protect the powerless and to advocate for the voiceless? It might look like families, friendships, neighborhoods, workplaces that are transformed because you're all following this king, King Jesus. Now, I started with the story about the gold rush, but I'm going to end with the reverse gold rush. Everyone was on their way to California to find some gold. In this beautiful narrative in Matthew, the Magi bring their gold to Jesus. In their eyes, they had found something even more precious than gold. They had found the king who had changed the world, the one who would be the shepherd of both Jew and Gentile. When we encounter the most precious thing in the world, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the one who saves us from our sins, the one who says, I am yours and you are mine, we can't help but lay our gold, our possessions, our greatest achievements, the works of our hands at his feet and fall on our faces before him. As you begin this fall season, a season usually full of busyness and hectic overscheduling, and even just trying to reestablish rhythms that are different from the summer. Many of you are in different places. Some of you are anxious. Some of you are really tired. Some of you are wishing that the summer would not end. Some of you can't wait for the summer to end. Some of you might be desperate for a new start. Friends, hear this. In a world that offers very little hope, especially now, there is no greater thing you need to hear than this. Jesus was born, verse 1, and he is your shepherd, verse 6. He is your living hope. He knows what it's like to be ostracized, to suffer with sorrow, because he was born into this broken world. But he also suffered in a way that we couldn't, on the cross. And the fact that he would eventually die and rise from the dead tells us that nothing, no one, can separate us from his love. The Son of God came down to be with us, to identify with us, and yet to live a perfect life unlike us, and to die in a way that was impossible for us, so that we could say, I have hope, I am forgiven. I'm free because Jesus has saved me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I lift up this congregation into your hands, your hands of love, your hands of great caring, your hands of mercy and grace. Lord, you have never abandoned us. 
we thank you for the sending of your Son. Lord Jesus, thank you for being born. We thank you for living the life that we couldn't, dying on the cross for our sins. Holy Spirit, make that truth come alive in us, even now. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen.